1: And we're going to be in chapter 8 through 10 was our passage to read this week. And I pray that you're joining with me in reading through the scriptures and through the passage. It helps make what we're talking about a little bit more real. And if you're coming in, are we prepared? The topic is who shall contend with God? Have you ever thought about who can contend with God? In our scripture reading earlier, Randy read of the frustration and the fear of Job that he shared with his friends. and You might recall that Job was undergoing spiritual adversary from a cosmic wager between God and Satan. He was facing misfortune from the loss of all his material goods from natural disasters and raiding parties who took his goods, his sheep, his lambs, his cattle. He was dealing with the anguish of losing all of his children in one devastating blow by a whirlwind. He was struggling in distress from his wife, who had all but abandoned him. And he was suffering in misery and torment and physical discomfort and affliction with boils over his body. And it's in that distress he seeks comfort in the wisdoms of his friends, only to have them point their fingers at him as being the problem. And Job sees no end to his ordeal, and he agrees that the Almighty can end his suffering. But he cries out in Job chapter 9, 32 through 33, once again on the monitor. And listen as Job reasons this out. For God is not a man as I am, that I might answer him. That we should come to trial together. There is no arbitrator between us who may lay his hand on us both. What a powerful coming to Jesus moment, so to speak. As he's considering his life, who can contend with God? Who am I that I can come before God? Now, I remember you've heard me give me testimony of this. This is one of those passages that was eye-opening to me when I was still just a layperson. I still remember vividly to this day being in my little warehouse, sitting in my little office. I worked in like a little shipping receiving type area. And I was doing my devotions, in the King James it uses the word daysman. There is no daysman to become between God and I. And I and I remember I didn't know what daysman was. And I had no tools at that time. And that day there was no internet that you and I re- think of, that where I could type it in. There was no Bible Gateway, no Blue Letter Bible, none of that type of thing. I don't even think. Uh, oh, what was that? What was that old internet um, Netscape? Is it Netscape? There was none of that. There's no Gio cities. But I remember calling my pastor and he had an old concordance. I said, what is this in 932-38? is a daisman? And I still remember with excitement where he shared with me a daisman in the near ancient East was that man who would come between two people who had an, who had an issue. This is where we had judges and courts. There was elders that would come before and you would, you would come and you would state your case between two people. And a daysman would be a, a, a neutral party who would stand between one person and put his hand on this shoulder and the others you might recall me doing this many times before, but again, redundancy is the key here. And he would then speak and say, "What's your issue? What do you want to do about?" It? And come and make a, a mediator and an arbitrator. And I remember with joy when I received this, because obviously, immediately I went to Jesus as that one mediator. And he's saying here, who is going to contend with God? Who is it that can stand between God and man and plead our case? You see, Job is correct. Who can stand and contend with God? That's the issue that all humanity faces when we stand before a holy God. And again, I wonder today, and I want to encourage you. Do you understand what holy God means? Do you understand the holiness of a God we serve? Throughout the ages, we have refashioned God into our image. And we made Him who we want Him to be. And we put our thoughts onto him and we put our principles onto him and we put our morality on him but let me tell you this is a holy God as rebellious sinners born with an innate hatred of God and that's what each and every one of us are we're all guilty and deserving of justice and that justice before a holy God is death so who can stand before a holy God the almighty creator Who can stand before him and declare their innocence before him? What evidence could you present for your own holiness or for your innocence? You and I cannot even enter his presence. Yet, here's the wonderful truth of the gospel. God in his mercy put into motion a redemption plan to reconcile us back to himself. Now, that does not mean that God stoops to our level. But what scripture tells us is that he plans on raising us up to his level. Again, we're always trying to bring God down here. But God is in the plan of bringing us to himself. That's the good news of the gospel. And as you and I come to the book of Leviticus, we see that God is graciously providing a way for his people to live In his presence. To those who are rebellious sinners can come and stand in worship and serve a holy God. Again, Leviticus serves as part two of an ongoing drama of the children of Israel restarted in Exodus after the deliverance from Egypt. It serves as a pit stop on their way to the promised land as God is giving Moses all the instructions for his newly redeemed people, teaching them how to worship and obey the holy God. Leviticus presents the gospel as it points out the high cost of sin, the beautiful picture of grace and redemption, and both the corporate and personal call to holiness. Now, last week we considered the five ritual offerings, their purposes, and their shortcomings. One theologian points out, again, I want to bring this to your attention, that God gave the book Leviticus to a people that were already redeemed. The offerings in Leviticus served as God's gracious provision of how one could regain and sustain fellowship with God. What we mean by that is that already redeemed means that God has made a special covenant with Israel that promises blessings for obediences and curses for disobedience. It's not the gospel that you and I think of, but it's the law. He says, I've redeemed you and here's the blessings and cursings knowing the human tendency and a bent towards evil and rebellion, God then also provides a way for Israel to not only stay in the covenant, this is what you must do to stay in the covenant, but he also shares with them what's needed to make amends for when they break the covenant. The main point last week was that the five ritual offerings reminded the people of the wonderful grace of God and it demonstrated the high cost of sin in those offerings, as something innocent had to die for the guilty. Now, in choosing Israel, the children of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, God provided, as we shared before, four temporary solutions to deal with sin. Those were the ritual laws, the purity laws, the priests, as we're going to see in the moment, and the Day of Atonement. In today's passage, God is going to give Moses instructions concerning the ordination and the initiation of the high priest and his assistants. Read with me in Leviticus chapter 8, if I can get it out. Chapter 8 of Leviticus, we're going to read the first four verses together. The Lord spoke to Moses saying, take Aaron and his sons with him and the garments and the anointing oil and the bull of the sin offering and the two rams and the basket of unleavened bread and assemble all the congregation at the entrance of the tent of meeting. And Moses did as the Lord commanded him and the congregation was assembled at the entrance of the tent of meeting. Father, as we come before you, I pray that you give us wisdom and discernment as we read large portions of scriptures that are many times difficult to understand. Especially as as many of these things are far removed from us culturally, historically, and even just ethnically. But Father, it is your word and we're called to understand it. We're called to obey it. So give us wisdom, discernment. Let us speak words, Lord, that edify and build up. And Father, make our hearts tender that we may hear and respond to the Spirit's work. Pray this in the name of your Son. Amen. Well, let me just give you a summary of uh, chapters 8 through 10. First, we're going to see that Adam and his sons consecrated. I, th- I believe we may have something here, just a picture of the priest. You might recall this from earlier in Exodus. You may not see this well, but this would be the, the clothes. They were was pretty elaborate that they had to build, or they had to uh, make and create. They were given special clothing, and they were promised provisions from the sacrifice given for the people. So what we're going to see is Moses, or I'm sorry, Aaron and his sons, the priest, they would be able to eat of the sacrifices. Moses consecrates Aaron and Aaron's sons and then he consecrates the temple and the, or the tabernacle and his furnishings with the blood of the sacrifices. He would take the blood and he would sprinkle it on the, uh, the altar and on the furnishings on Aaron and his clothes. Uh, it, was, it was a bloody religion as we look at this. We saw that they offered a sin offering, a burnt offering and the ordination offering for the priest. Then they're commanded to stay there at the end of chapter 8, inside the tabernacle for seven days for their ordination. And then afterwards, there's a sin offering for the priest and for the people. Now I'd like for you to take your Bibles and turn to Leviticus chapter 9, verse 22. And there's something here as we see a great story happening here. As they prepare the offerings... After following all the instructions of Yahweh of chapter 8 and most of chapter 9, Aaron and his sons begin to prepare the offerings for themselves and the people. That's for the most part chapter 9. And in this passage, we're going to see God's blessing and the people's worship. Look at verse 22 of chapter 9. Then Aaron lifted up his hands towards the people and he blessed them. And he came down from offering the sin offering and the burnt offerings and the peace offerings. Verse 23. And Moses and Aaron went into the tent of meeting. That's the tabernacle. And when they came out, they blessed the people. And the glory of the Lord appeared to all the people. Verse twenty-four. And fire came out from before the Lord and consumed the burnt offerings and the pieces of fat on the altar. And when all the people saw it, they shouted, and they fell on their face. What we see here is not a burning that was made of wood and a fire brought in by Moses and Aaron or one of the Levites. What we see here is miraculous, supernatural fire, as fire that, that brought them into the land, as from the burning bush, as God comes and he lights and burns the offering himself. What you see here is God is accepting their offering. And this is an important point. If you're taking notes, I want you to get this. Is obedience always precedes worship. Obedience precedes worship. How does one worship when obedience is absent? God blesses those who are obedient to his word. They followed his instructions. They followed his word. They followed what their leaders told him and then God blesses them with leads them to worship. And I just want to take a a moment just to make an editorial note, a little uh, rabbit trail if I may is that's the same thing for you and I here today. Let me ask you, you're here today to worship. At least I pray that's why you're here. Now let me ask you, how is your obedience? Have you followed the word of God? Are you attempting to follow the word of God? Have you submitted to the word of God? Do you come and do you look for a blessing from God? My scripture tells us in Matthew, If you have something between a brother, what does he tell you to do? Leave your your gift at the altar. Go and make it right. Then come and offer. Why? Because we can just bring it down. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and love your neighbor as yourself. That's the sum of the law. That's the sum of obedience. So as you come here this morning, is there anything here that would prevent you from truly worshiping and God accepting that worship? Obedience always precedes why it's so important is that moment of of silence I'd encourage you to use that time to prepare your hearts obviously we'd ask you to do that beforehand we ask you to do it each and every day that's what God has called us to do but obedience precedes worship and God blesses their worship the people fall down and worship God but the worship started when they obeyed what he said to do Now, the role of the high priest, and that's what we're here to talk about this morning, is that the role of a high priest, now, again, I know that this sometimes can just glaze our eyes because what in the world is the high priest? We're we're not Jews. We're, We're not ancient Israel. We no longer have high priests. We don't even call each other priest, even though scripture calls us the royal priesthood. I mean, even Israel no longer does these things. They don't have a high priest that does these. They don't have a tabernacle, a tent of meeting where these are performed. So why should we know or think about a high priest? Well, it's important because the high priest is integral to God's redemption plan. And that's important for you and I, for all of us to understand where we've been, what God has been doing. It's because of our inability to approach a holy God. You and I need a mediator. Who can contend with God? In Job's day, there was no high priest. There was no one to stand between him and God. But yet God, in his grace, institutes and ordains the priesthood. And he puts one man at the focus, the high priest. In this case, it's Aaron and then his sons. It says, you will be my mediator. You will stand before God and before the people. We need one who can stand between God and man. And to accomplish this, God ordained the role of the high priest along with his insistence to perform this important function. Now this brings us to the main point of the passage. And I want you to get this. It's there on the screen so you can make a note if you need to. But Leviticus, what it does here in this passage, it's demonstrating God's wonderful grace in providing a human mediator, one that is one like us, one who can understand who we are. In it, God provides a human mediator who can stand and plead our case before a holy God. One pastor out of Texas writes this, because God is holy, he requires a mediator to stand between himself and his people. In Leviticus, God sets apart his ministers that they may serve him and his people. But it also warns us that God's ministers must serve him as he requires, and not that they decide for themselves. As those who represented God to the people, God's ministers were to teach God's people all that he had commanded. And those who represented the people before God, they were to facilitate the atonement. Now, the purpose of the high priest was just to mediate between Yahweh and the children of Israel. Turn to Leviticus chapter 10 to the next chapter. For in this passage, Yahweh declares to the priest, you are to distinguish between the holy and the common. That was their first responsibility. Distinguish between that which is holy and that which is common. Now, next chapter, she's going to tell them what that is. And also between the unclean and what is clean. And you are to Teach the people of Israel, <coughs> excuse me, all the statutes that the Lord had was spoken to them by Moses. You see, Moses is the nation's first prophet and the earthly leader, but he was not a priest. His job was to convey to people what Yahweh had revealed to him. While his brother Aaron, the nation's first high priest, his job is to lead the people into worship of Yahweh. And this is what the mediator is doing. Now this passage does have one stark alarming narrative. And it's found in chapter 10. You might have read this. And you might have said, what in the world is going on here? Look with me at this passage. Now Nadab and Abihu, the sons of Aaron, each took his censer. And that's kind of like a little container. And they put fire in it. And they laid incense on it. And they offered Unauthorized fire before the Lord, which he had not commanded them. And fire came out from before the Lord and consumed them, and they died before the Lord. So here we have some strange, mysterious story. Now, scripture does not give us any information about what made this fire unauthorized, or as some translation put it, strange. But we do know is that God did not. Accepted. Pastor John MacArthur notes that although the exact infraction is not detailed, in some way these two men violated the prescription for an offering incense. Now he, he, he remarks that it might be because they were drunk. In Leviticus chapter 10 verse 8, he tells them, do not be drunk when you're doing the duty. So it could have been, we do not know. But instead of taking the incense fire from the brazen altar, they had some other source for the fire or they put some other type of incense and they thus presented an act which is something that God did not authorize. Instead of miraculous fire coming down and burning the the offering as before, it comes and it burns up these two men. Again, we see the high cost of sin. And as you read Leviticus especially, The high cost of sin is always death. For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. The penalty of sin is death. One commentator remarks that Yahweh, God, is very serious about how his people are to approach him in worship. It is God who sets the parameters and directions for worship. And as we shall see, sinners need to be very careful in following God's instruction we see in scripture other people that God killed for their disobedience from Eli's two sons who were also priests who served in first Samuel to Uzzah in second Samuel who touched the ark as it went to fall to Ananias and Sapphira who lied about their giving in Acts but if you look at Leviticus chapter 10 look at verse 3 we must remember what God commanded Moses said to Aaron after burning up his two children, you could imagine Aaron is sitting there and saying, what in the world just happened? You could imagine the shock. You could almost imagine the grief as his porno, as a realization is what just happened? We just finished seven days of worshiping God, doing exactly what he says. God brings down this miraculous fire. Everyone is worshiping him. And then the very next day, His two oldest children are taken away by God. Verse 3, then Moses said to Aaron, this is what the Lord had said. Among those who near me, I will be sanctified. And before all of the people, I will be glorified. What is he saying? Saying, as you, as my chosen priest, are to be set apart. And I am to be glorified, and the way in which I am glorified is by being obedient to my word. Jesus says the same if you love me, obey my commandments. Again, disobedience leads to the high cost. Yet the sign time we see the high cost of sin in Leviticus chapter 10 verse 16, we see God's wonderful grace. Look at verse 16. Moses diligently inquired about the goat of the sin offering. So Moses now comes in and he's checking on them. Are are they doing what they're supposed to be doing after a series of sacrifices? So he inquired about the goat of the sin offering and behold, it was burnt up. And he was angry with Eleazar and Ithamar these are the surviving sons of Abraham of I'm sorry of Aaron. And he says in verse 17, "Why have you not eaten the sin offering in the place of the sanctuary?" Remember they were to take it, burn some of it, then take some of it into the sanctuary and they were to eat it. Since it is a most thing, uh, it is a thing most holy, and has been given to you that you may bear the iniquity of the congregation. It was not enough just to pour out its blood, but they were to eat it. It was part of the of the ritual that they had to follow, and to make atonement before them, before the Lord. Why did you not do what we've been instructing you to do? Did you not see what happened to your two older brothers? Behold, it was not blood, brought was not its blood, he says in verse 18, was its blood not brought into the inner part of the sanctuary? You certainly ought to have eaten it in the sanctuary as I've commanded. He has a a point here. They too disobeyed. Look at verse 19. And Aaron said to Moses, Behold, today they have offered their sin offering and their burnt offerings before the Lord. And yet such things as these have happened to me, exclamation point. Aaron is just pouring out his heart. If I had eaten this sin offering today, would the Lord approved? When Moses heard that, he approved. God held his hand against this disobedience. Yes, the remaining two sons of Aaron failed and disobeyed. And Aaron himself was complicit as the high priest has overseen it. He allowed them to disobey. They did not follow through with God's instructions. But God is gracious in considering Aaron's great grief of the loss of his older sins. And in this case, he passes over their sin. In chapter 10, I don't know if you saw it as you read through it, but you see God's both God's justice and his mercy. God's justice and mercy. Well, gosh, God graciously provides a mediator to lead his people into his presence. In this way, they would be taught God's commands, be reminded of the high cost of sin, but also be reminded and taught about the holiness of God. Wayne Grooman writes that in the Old Testament, the priests were appointed by God to offer the sacrifices. They also not only did that, but they also offered up prayers prayers and praise to God on behalf of the people. The people would come before him. He would pray for them, and then he would help them in praise of God. He was the mediator. Things would come through it. He would be the conduit for the praying up to God and also of the praising up for the people. In doing so, they sanctified or set apart the people or made them acceptable to come into God's presence. It was at that time that people could come to the temple, to the tabernacle even though it was in a limited way during the Old Testament period. However, even as we look at this high priest, there's some weaknesses, just as there was in the rituals, in this temporary provision, there's some weakness in this priestly system that made it temporary. The first, it was only national. It only covered Israel. If you're a Babylonian, Egyptian, if you're from some other part of the world, this did not cover you. The priesthood could not provide righteousness or transform a heart, as we see. The priesthood was subject to a king. They were not the sole authority. They had to, to, to report to a, a higher authority, a human high authority. The priesthood was based on descent and, and heredity. It had nothing to do with a person's character, as you'll see with the sons of Eli. These were awful men that should never have been priests, but yet, it was based on heredity and descent and nothing to do with the character of the person. The priesthood was limited by time. As they would grow old and die, there would be continually new priests. The priesthood themselves, the priests, were sinners. There was nothing about them. They would have to offer sacrifices for their own sins first before they could offer it for the people. Not only that, it only serves, as the Scripture tells us, as a copy or a shadow of one who was to come. So, in providing this temporary position as a mediator for the children of Israel, what God is doing here for them and for us as we look back, God is pointing to something much greater. For one day, God will provide a mediator that will be universal, that could stand in the place of all peoples. He would bring a mediator who would be righteous not with sin and bring final peace because even the offerings that they do did not bring final peace between God and man. But he also would bring a mediator, one who would be a ruler and a king and one that would be eternal. See, this high priest would be sinless. He would have no need to offer sacrifices of his own sin. He will offer one sacrifice that will appease the wrath of God for all time. He will not only offer a sacrifice, but this mediator, this high priest will become the sacrifice. We find that promise in the writings of David in Psalms 110. I believe this is on the screen. Where David writes, the Lord says to my Lord, set at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. The Lord sends forth from Zion your mighty scepter. Rule in the midst of your enemies. Your people are offered themselves freely on the day of your power in holy garments. From the womb of the morning, the dew of your youth will be yours. Verse four, the Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Now, that's an interesting portion of Scripture. For here we see the introduction of a high priest after the order of Melchizedek. Now, Melchizedek in Scripture is a shadowy figure. He's first mentioned in Genesis 14 as the king and high priest of Salem, which would eventually become Jerusalem. He brings refreshment to Abraham after a long battle. But we also see that Abraham shows not worship, but he submits to this king. Now, many believe that Melchizedek was actually Shem. Now, not one of the three stooges, but the son of Noah. Scripture gives no other information concerning his identity or his heritage, other than that he was this. And this is what's unique in Genesis 14, that Melchizedek was the priest of God Most High. This is a man that, unlike any other king or ruler, this is not Job, this is is before Abraham and the children of Israel, but even as God is calling Abraham, there is already a priest of the Most High God. You see, worship of God is still happening in pockets of civilization, even before he calls Abraham out. And it isn't until Psalms that Mechizedek is mentioned again And then he's mentioned eight other times in the book of Hebrews. The writer of Hebrews promises or proclaims that Jesus, the Christ, the Messiah, the Son of God, is that high priest. The Hebrew writer, Hebrew says, and being made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation. Speaking of Jesus, to all who obey him, being designated by God, a high priest after the order of Melchizedek. In other words, the promise of Psalms 110 we see has been fulfilled in Jesus Christ. What this means is that unlike Aaron and his sons and those who followed him, Jesus is not one who's chosen by men, but one chosen by God to be the high priest. Nor will his office end. He will also not be subject to an earthly king, but will rule as both the high priest and king. He will not be a human mediator as those had become before him, but he's fully God and fully man. He's the one mediator that can stand between both God and God and man. So I want to offer this question, how does Christ perform that office? You'll see this in the monitor. And I want you to understand this. So this is important because the promise of a high priest was an important part of scripture. an important role in scripture in the redemption plan. You see, Christ performs the office of a priest by once offering himself as a sacrifice. Why? To satisfy divine justice and to reconcile us to God, and by making continual intercession for us before God. So I want to give you those three ways that Jesus performs this function as the high priest. Number one is that Jesus offered a perfect sacrifice for sin. Jesus offered a perfect sacrifice for sin. And the scripture tells us that the blood of bulls and goats could never take away sin. Hence why they had to do time and time again. But yet Jesus came to be a substitute in our place. Hebrew tells us that therefore that Jesus had to be like his brothers in every respect. So that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God. We see there why he had to become man. Why? So he could understand us. No, so he could put his hand on his shoulders and as he speaks to God, he could speak to God as one who walked in our shoes. That's why scripture says that God was, or Jesus was tempted in the same way that you and I were tempted. But yet he walked faithfully. He walked obediently. He did what we could not do. But instead of that of bulls and goats, He offered himself sinless. But what we see there in verse chapter 2 of Hebrews, but he made propitiation for the sins of the people. Now that word propitiation just means that God's wrath is appeased. He now looks at us not as enemies, but as friends. You and I, again, you've heard me say this before. You and I can get forgiveness. You and I can forgive people, do we not? You've forgiven people who have hurt you, but do you forget you and I, you know what I'm talking about. Someone has harmed you. Someone has hurt you. Someone has devastated your life, damaged it maybe beyond repair. And you may come to that point where you say, I can forgive them. But yet even in that forgiveness, you know that there's still turmoil between you and them. You'll never trust them in the same way. You'll never view them in the same way. And even that, it affects your other relationships and your other entanglements in life. But what we see here is what Jesus did is more than just give a forgiveness, but what he did, he made us right with God. God does not see us as we once were. He does not remember the, uh, the actions that we had against him. He does not remember our sins and our disobedience. God never looks at you with any mixture of wrath again, but just love. I don't know if you've ever thought about that or considered that, but I would to ask you meditate on that this morning. This is not a God who hates you any longer for those that are called to his purpose, but he loves you. But you say, you, yeah, wait, but I've disobeyed. I've disobeyed. I've sinned. I've rebelled. God still holds out his hand and says, come to me. Scripture gives us the picture of a father running to the prodigal son. That's what he does. See, God is quick to forgive. He is quick to bring us back into his arms. The high priest of Aaron could not do that. For he would have to offer a sacrifice for sin the next day and the next year. But God was a sacrifice, the perfect sacrifice and appease the wrath of God. Number two, Jesus continually brings us near to God. Hebrews chapter 10 says, Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain. In other words, there's no longer the holy of holies. There is no longer an impediment for us coming straight to God as there was in the early redemption plan. Because through his flesh, since we have been a great high priest over the house of God, he says, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith with our hearts sprinkled clear or clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. There's a final cleansing And you and I can now approach God with confidence. No longer going saying, I don't want to go near that mountain where it's shaking as it was in Exodus. And they said, no, Moses, you go talk to God for us, for we fear him. No, we can come before him. No longer are we like Job and says, who can contend with God for us? For I am fearful, for he can decimate me a child of God he says you can cry out Abba means Papa come to me I love you and thirdly I think this is one that I really want us to grab a hold of as well this morning I don't know these three points are like favorite kids you know which one do you choose but Jesus as the priest continually prays for us if you don't have this marked in your Bible do so. Hebrews 7:25. Consequently, the writer of Hebrews writes speaking of Jesus, that's the context. He is able to save to the othermost those who draw near to God through him since he always makes intercession for them. And I and I and brought back to the words Jesus spoke to Peter. Peter, Satan, desires you that he may stir you and, or move you like chaff. But what did Jesus say? But I have prayed for you. Did you know that? Jesus prays for you by name. The one who created you, the one who wired you, the one who's ordaining your walk, prays with you through your difficulties. He prays through you. He makes intercession. He's the one that can stand between you and God with his arm and say, Father, listen, this is one of my children. He's covered under my blood. Would you give him courage? Would you give him strength? Would you give him faith? He's not a high priest who needs sleep or who gets sick or goes on a journey but one who is always there and he prays for us. Let me ask you this, all of us think of a prayer chain. Who do you call, who do you ask when you're going through difficulties, when you're suffering pain, when life is down? Who do you call and say, pray for me? By the way, we have this little app called Slack, S L A C K. encourage you to download it. We have a prayer and praise chain. Where we pray for one another, we try to do it on Facebook as well. And many times you'll see it: "Hey, pray for me. Pray for this." And you'll see people saying, "Praying, praying, praying." But let me ask you: the first person you should ask to pray for you—anybody want to guess? Thank you. It's Jesus. I don't want to be blasphemous or flippant, but is he on your Slack? Is he on your Facebook? Is he the person that you go to and say, Jesus, would you pray for me? I'm having some difficulties here. I'm struggling with my faith here. I'm afraid I'm going to fail here. Jesus, would you present my case before the Father? Why? Because Revelation tells us that we have an accuser who accuses the brethren before God. We see him doing it in Job. Job says, who would pray for me? Who would talk to God for me? You see, Scripture teaches us that you and I need a mediator who can contend with God for us. We need one who can can speak for us. We need an advocate. We need a lawyer. And God in His wonderful, amazing grace provides one. Jesus Christ, as Paul writes to Timothy here on a monitor, you know this portion of scripture, for there is one God and there is one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. You and I must grab a hold of this. It is not Mary. It is not anyone else. It is Jesus Christ who prays for you, who brings your offering to, to, to the Father. Without this mediator who gave his own life for God's people, you and I would would be without hope. This is why this is a big deal. Listen to this. The prophet Ezekiel records a dire warning from God who declared, Behold, all souls are mine. The soul of the Father as well as the soul of the Son is mine. And listen, this is his final words. The soul who sins shall die. Why is a high priest necessary? Why is it important for us to understand it? Because you and I need a high priest. Your family needs a high priest. Your friends need a high priest. For when they stand before God on that day of judgment, who will plead their case? Roman tells us that all are without excuse as he gives down the guilty plea and the charges. I want to encourage you. Would you embrace the high priest? who can make you right with God, who can bring you peace between you and God, who prays for you, who loves you, who says, come into my presence. When you begin praying now about introducing your friends and your family to the high priest, for without him, there will be eternity of no hope. The fact that Jesus gave his life to be the high priest so that you and I can be reconciled to the Father, let me close with this, should lead you and I to worship. Just as Israel saw the glory in the form of a fire that came down from heaven and, com- and consumed the sacrifice, so you and I have also seen the glory of, of God, but in Christ Jesus the apostle John declares that in the word writing of Jesus became flesh and he dwelt among us and we have seen his glory. Glory is the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. So my last challenge is to you. As with the ordination and initiation of the high priesthood, it led to obedience and worship. Is Jesus as our final high priest. It should lead us to obedience and to worship. One theologian wrote, Worship is mandated for the believer and thus must be an important part of our life. Worship is not an experience or a warm feeling. It is a cognitive awe and reverence of the holy God that focuses on him. It's not about conjuring up the right music and making ourselves feeling emotionally good or or some type of -of out-of-body experience. Without worship, he goes on. It is easy to minimize sin. Hence why the coming together. That's why he says, do not forsake the assembling of yourselves, but be there to encourage one another. Why? Because sin just fights at us. The battle can become overwhelming. Without worship, it's easy to minimize sin and to fail in our spiritual growth that would worship God. Let me get you to this. Worship makes us aware of our own spiritual needs. Again, our worship is predicated on our obedience, just as Israel and the high priest themselves. But let us praise God, though, through his providence. God has provided a high priest who has forgiven us, who has cleansed us and prays for us, even in our failures. To God be the glory. And God's people said, with every head bowed and every eye closed, the worship team comes up, I just want to encourage you. You have one who will pray for you. You have one who has offered himself for you. And there's one who continue to bring you near to God. We no longer need a human mediator. For you and I have one that can contend with God for us. Would you take advantage of that this morning? Father, we just come before you and we just thank you for your goodness. We thank you for this picture of the high priest. And Father, we thank you that we live in such a time and place that we no longer need to be involved in these rituals and these these human mediators that were were, uh, sinners and failures in so many ways themselves and flawed. But we have Jesus Christ who came and completed what you started. We stand in full redemption of the gospel. Father, may that cause us to worship and to follow you in obedience. Lord, thank you so much for your wonderful gift to us. We praise the name of Christ. Amen.
0: We hope you have enjoyed this week's Walking in Faith podcast. We encourage you to share this podcast with others in order to help spread God's message to all those in need. If you have any questions or comments, we would love to hear from you. Email us at walkinginfaith at orangevilla.org.